0: title is, Who Put Herod in My Nativity? From Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23. I won't read all of these because I have too much to say. In Christian tradition, and not a good Christian tradition, the Sunday between Christmas and New Year's is the lowest attended Sunday. It's been for 300 years of Christian, last Christian tradition, and it's almost always the Sunday that the senior pastor takes off and lets other people take it. One of the reasons is the gospel passage for this day is not fun. Um, This is the rest of the story. You can't have the magi as a part of your Christmas narrative without this part of the story. If you don't include this part of the story, you're missing it, and you're missing the big picture. Real quick, go ahead and put up the next slide, and I'll... Make my transition here. We usually refer to this as the refugees, and I don't want to get into a political discussion of what a refugee is and what a refugee is not, because many people have tried to make Mary and Joseph going to Bethlehem as a refugee story. No, it's not. They were just doing what the government said to do and went to go pay their taxes. However, today's story is a refugee story in every definition of what a refugee story is. We come to Christmas, especially those of us who are trained professionals, we come to Christmas and we want everything to be perfect, we want it to look like a Hallmark Christmas card and everything's great. We want it to look like the movies that we watch on TV. You know, it's a wonderful life. It's a horrible thing. And then at the end, everything's wonderful. It's great. Even in Home Alone, that classic Christmas movie, everything turns out great eventually. Even in all of the Grinch presentations, his heart may have been three sizes too small, but it's bigger at the end. It always has a happy ending. Hmm. Maybe that's why we don't like to talk about this text. Maybe it's why we don't like to read it. Maybe that's why ministers like me put so much effort in trying to create something that's meaningful and magical during the Advent and Christmas season. And many of us stay up late at night trying to figure that out. One such minister was Brett Younger. His bio reads like this, and I will just read it because it says what I'd like to say. Go ahead. Now, this was about four or five years ago, but you can look this up on Amazon. Brett says, after seven years working as pastor of Broadway Baptist Church in Fort Worth, Texas, he and his wife, Carol, have two children, Graham and Caleb. Brett is the author of the not nearly popular enough book, Who Moved My Pulpit?, now hovering about 1,300,000th place on the Amazon.com list of bestsellers. He's a graduate of Baylor University and Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, back when that wasn't embarrassing. His sermons have appeared in a variety of journals that only preachers read. That's the bio that he chose about, I'm guessing about 30 years ago, because Brett currently serves as a pastor of a prominent church. He used to be a teaching professor at Mercer University, Mercer Theological Seminary. He was doing his first Christmas Eve candlelight communion service, which is way too much stuff to do, and you shouldn't try to put all that stuff together, but he was trying to put that together. And he wanted it to be perfect because it was the first one they had ever done in Paoli, Indiana. And it was going great. A young girl named Melody played the flute, and what child is this? And three generations, a grandmother, a mother, and a daughter lit the Advent candles. They sang, Oh, come all ye faithful, and away in the manger in Oh, little town of Bethlehem. They read the story of Mary, Joseph, and the baby in the manger. It was truly a Hallmark card picture of worship. So many churches have been jealous. Then it happened. Like it had happened other times. Danny Hickman's beeper went off. Now, Danny Hickman was a volunteer fireperson. And his beeper tended to go off a lot. And it was ten times a lot more likely to go off in the middle of the pastor's sermon. But it went off a lot. But it went off during Christmas Eve. And before long, they started singing Silent Night. But when they got to Wondrous Star, Lend Thy Light, Danny ran back in and shouted that a church member named Bob's, his mother's house was on fire. And it was burning to the ground. Danny's wife got up and left. And then everyone had to choose between that well-crafted sermon by someone who was going to be famous for teaching preachers or going to check out the really big fire. Brett Younger recalls that by the time he got to Mary and Joseph going to the manger, the congregation was made up of people waiting for a ride home or those who had fallen asleep. It certainly was not the kind of Christmas Eve that you would want. It's not the one we planned Why did a tragedy happen then? Why couldn't it have waited until at least January 1st? It would have been the new year and we could have set a resolution. But that's the kind of story or Christmas story we find ourselves with today in Matthew chapter 2. Tragedies should wait, but somehow they don't. The gospel reading for today is not pleasant. And even the Grinch on his worst day would have a hard time Trying to deal with it. The tragedy of this text is far worse than shooting your eye out with a Red Rider BB gun. According to Matthew's gospel, the Magi came to visit Mary and Joseph at a house in Matthew chapter 20, chapter 2, verse 11. Mary and Joseph were most likely getting settled in with life as parents, adjusting to the baby. And what do you do with the child that's the Son of God? And the arrival of the Magi to the house, in case you haven't gotten the point yet, be here next week. When the Magi show up at the house, oh, everyone is coming to see Jesus. Oh, this will be great. Everything will be wonderful. We won't have to do anything. They'll bring presents for him at all times. I can't miss this point the child, what does the child get? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Why don't you Google what frankincense and myrrh are used for sometime? Strange present. When all the child really wanted was a Nintendo. But as Paul Harvey would say, now for the rest of the story. In Matthew's account, we read about King Herod. He's not happy to learn about this newborn king because he's the king. Rome made him king of the Jews Who else gets to be king of the Jews? No one. I'm king of the Jews. But think about it. Like I mentioned last Sunday, Joseph doesn't get to talk in the Christmas pageant. Have you ever tried to cast Herod in the Christmas pageant? No one wants to be Herod. He's the villain. He's the bad guy. The scary part, though, he has more lines than Joseph has. And think about it. In this after Christmas sale time of the year, I bet you could go to Farm King or Walmart and find a cheap nativity set. But I bet you can't find a glow-in-the-dark Herod nativity set, can you? Herod has more of a right to be in the nativity scene than the Magi do. Magi don't belong there. Herod does. Herod is the reason for so much of this. Matthew, writing well before there were hallmark cards, writes and does not even know how to describe this event that is horrible. It is the most horrific thing you can visualize. And we read the words, Matthew chapter two, verse 18. And he quotes from the book of Jeremiah, and just a rule. Anytime you quote from the book of Jeremiah in context, it's going to be depressing. It reads, A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. This is Matthew's commentary about what just happened. We read in verses 13 through 15 that Herod figures out he got tricked by the Magi and he sends soldiers to kill all the children two years and under in Bethlehem. Now, do not miss, because Matthew is working his magic here, inspired magic. Matthew wants us to see, writing to Jewish people, that Jesus is Moses, but a better Moses. Do you recall any two-year massacre in Moses' lifetime? Matthew wants them to see that. We want to skip King Herod. I want to skip King Herod. It's probably why a lot of pastors pass this text off and say, Hey, kid with barely any seminary education, why don't you teach this text? Because it's hard. We don't like King Herod for good reason. The Grinch is scared of King Herod. King Herod is awful and terrible and not a friendly dude. He executed, and I quote this from the document, the historical record says he killed his favorite wife. My concern is what did he do with his least favorite wife? He killed his favorite wife, his brother-in-law, and his own sons, probably three of them. Because he thought they wanted to be king. Now you tell him there's a baby that wants to be king? This is not going to go well. That's how Matthew describes it. And we can talk about this a minute during Pastor Talkback, and I won't have an emotionally satisfying answer, sorry. What did these kids do wrong? Yeah. Nothing. And evil attacks... The Grinch of the first century comes in and sends his soldiers, and we have mothers clutching their babies, hiding in the closet hoping their babies don't cry. It's horrific. Why does the angel, according to this text, warn in a dream, warn Joseph and no one else? Now, we're pretty sure we know why he warned Joseph and not Mary. Mary has a small child, and in that culture is not getting to sleep at all. And maybe got some sleep. That's why he goes to Joseph. But that doesn't explain why all the other parents don't get warned. Thus Matthew says, there was weeping. So as you may see this coming, what do we do when our Hallmark card holiday picture goes away? What happens this Christmas season for you, this holiday season for you, in this 12 days of Christmas? What do you do when it looks like it's fallen literally apart? Tragedy is a part of our life. Maybe it's the death of a loved one. Maybe it's the discovery of a tragic illness. Maybe it's finding out one of your relatives is getting a divorce. Or discovering that family member is doing horrible things. Maybe every Christmas season you are faced with the memory of the death of a small child. Every single mother and father who was there for this event, when Herod sends the soldiers in, has to be reminded of this every year. Tradition, and that's code word if you don't know what that means, tradition tells us that the slaughtering of the innocents happened three or four days after when Jesus was born two years later. But chronologically, wherever you, whenever you think Jesus was born, This happened four days afterwards on the calendar. So it became something that was celebrated, or not celebrated, remembered. And they got reminded of it every single year. Maybe the guilt of these parents through something that's not even their fault weighed on them beyond belief. Maybe it was like a young lady in one of the churches that I served at who was was 16, got pregnant, got an abortion, didn't really want to, and her guardians probably made her do it. And now she tries to live as an adult with that guilt. What do you do when your Hallmark holiday card idea falls apart? Can't emphasize this enough. I do not have emotionally satisfying answers to this question. However, when this text is taught, we have determined there are some basic things that Matthew was trying to convey. And I'm going to try to convey them, and then they're this does not fit my normal pattern. This is more scatter shooting. If you're used to three points and a weird conclusion, this is what you're getting today. Because I want to try to cover all these things and never come back to this passage ever again as your pastor. Um, One... Remember, all Herods eventually die. We read in verse 19. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. Herod the Great dies. Every person who is evil, every act of evil that you do, you die just a little. Because it takes so much energy to act and be evil to others. The entire historical account of Herod the Great, which we know so much about Herod the Great. It does not make him look good. I don't get to say any nice things at his funeral. I get to say he left one of his sons live. Good for you. Herod was so evil, so grinchy. That according to records that we can verify easily, you can probably Google and find a copy of the document that we have. Herod knew no one liked him, especially the Jews. And he was reaching a stage of life where he knew he was going to pass away. And so he called all the leaders of the Jewish people, so all the leaders of the Jews were to come to him, and most of them did. And he put them into what's known as the, I always get it wrong, The Jericho Hippodrome, think prison, but not as bad as Macharus, the prison John the Baptist went to. And he put them all in the prison. And he made a law that the day he died, all the men in that prison were to be killed. People may be excited at his death, but they would mourn the loss of those men. Now in fairness, we have great reason to believe historically that those men were not killed. Because all Herod's die. It's kind of hard to enforce a rule when no one liked you and you're dead. But that's what Herod did. That's what it is. Think of the evil it took to do that. Why do Herod's die? Because we all die. A phrase that lives in infamy in my academic life. Don't worry, John. This too will pass. When it comes to evil, this too will pass. I do want to be fair, even though this is correctly Matthew's point. I do want to point out that when one evil leaves, another one usually replaces it. Heard of Herod Antipas? Heard Herod of Agrippa? They get rid of Jesus and his disciples. All Herods die. but that doesn't mean it's always fun. Two, this is why Matthew starts his narrative this way in verse 13 and 14 in this section. We need faith to resist the Herods of the world. It says, when the Magi left, the angel said to Joseph in a dream, get up, because Herod's trying to kill the child. So what does Joseph do that's faithful? One, he does what the angel says. This is a characteristic of Joseph. According to Matthew and Luke, Joseph always does what the angel says. No matter how scary it is. And he leaves. Now there are times you need to stand and fight the evil in the world. And there are times that you cannot and you need to flee to fight a battle another day. But you're like, oh, well, this sounds easy. He just gets up and goes to Egypt. Did I mention Moses? I mentioned Moses, right? Why, why does Moses have to stand up for the Hebrew people? Because they became slaves, and in Egypt they were always considered lower-class citizens and always treated poorly, always treated badly, God says, go to a new country where you have nothing. I know you invested all of your life, and you've built a house. But go to Egypt. You don't have anything. Take the child. It'll be cool. Would you trust God if God told you to do that? Sometimes we have to resist the evil that is in the world by doing things that seem absolutely impossible. Can you imagine how Joseph felt? The Magi have just shown up. He's thinking, this stepfather to Jesus thing is awesome. We get gifts all the time. And then the angel says, "Eh, forgot to leave, forgot to mention something about Christmas. It's not always so much fun. Three. And this is the hard one, and this really is Matthew's point writing to the Jewish people. We must resist the Herods inside us all. Now, this may not sound to you like this is Matthew's point. Let me just read the text. Joseph is told in verses 20 and 21, Get up and take the child and his mother and go into the land of Israel. So they've been in Egypt. Then the angel says, I want you to go back. For those who were trying to take the child's life are dead, Herod. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went back to the land of Israel. Don't you think Joseph was scared? I mean, let's just paint the picture. He's the stepfather of Jesus. Things are good. The Magi show up. Awesome. I like these gifts. Gold will be good. He can have a college fund. And then all of a sudden he's told to leave all of that and go to Egypt where he has nothing. And based on what we can figure out chronologically that he's there for a significant amount of time, at least a year or so, And he's established thing, and he may even have a business, and he may even be respected by the Egyptian people at that point. And the angel says, oh yeah, leave all that, go back. Don't you think he thought he was going back to something that would be awful? Don't you think he thought he was going back to another Herod was going to kill him? He had to be afraid. I cannot emphasize this point enough. Doubt is not the opposite of faith. Faith and doubt can go together. Faith and fear cannot. When you fear that God's not right, that's not faith. Joseph has to deal with all the facts. Remember Joseph? There's 100% evidence that Mary's lying to him. And he's trying to do the right thing, but he has faith in God. There's a great deal of evidence if he goes back, he's going to go back to nothing. And he may be hunted down again. But he does it anyway. When the angel says all clear, he doesn't know what to do. Sometimes we have to stand and resist the evil in the world and the fear that people put upon us. Brett Younger, he did a second Christmas Eve service. And he talks about his second Christmas Eve at Pioli, or at Central Baptist Church in Pioli. He says he got a phone call. It's kind of phone calls you do not want to get as a pastor. Quite frankly, you don't want to get as anyone. It was from the county hospital on December 23rd. county hospital said, and I quote, says, An unwed mother had given birth to a stillborn baby. The social worker called and wanted him to lead a graveside service the next morning. The social worker said that they would normally have a service a day later or at least in the afternoon, but she didn't want the child, the girl, to associate the horrible event with Christmas. This teenager had visited Brett's church a few times. This 15 year old named Marilyn, shocker, it's not her real name but we're going to call her that, had been, I need air quotes, but I'm having a hard time saying this based on my prudeness, had been taken advantage of by her grandfather. No one disputed that. And now they're having a funeral for a child came out of that. Add to that the Christmas Eve weather was miserable. The snow had been on the ground for more than a week. It had rained, and so the snow was not pretty anymore. The temperature was in the 20s, and it was threatening to rain again. Marilyn's oldest sister picked her up at the hospital and took her directly to the service. Their parents didn't even come. They blamed Marilyn for what happened. There were only four more people there. Brett, the funeral director, and two ladies from the church. Which, by the way, would make for a really good sermon about those two ladies, but not right now. Brett knew what he'd been told. We don't want to associate Christmas with this horrible event. And all Brett could think while he was thinking about standing up and and showing a lack of fear was the Matthew passage, chapter 2, verse 18. And the loud lamentations that Jeremiah talks about refusing to be consoled because they are no more. He said, if we have to stand at a gravesite on Christmas Eve, we need to remember the hope that comes with Christmas. We need to face the Herods that are within us and outside of us. The evils of society, the evils of unforgiveness, the evil of pretending all is good and everything is wonderful in the world. We all have tragedies in our life, and sometimes they fall on Christmas. Christmas. And nobody really likes it. Emmanuel, God with us, means that God is with us in these imperfect situations because we are imperfect. And a God who is perfect chose to be imperfect for you. That is the reason for the season. But that doesn't mean all these horrible things in life go away. It means that you have a God who came to live in that experience and to be with you the child of Bethlehem, even came to save people like Herod who think violence is the solution to everything. At the attempt of getting a little too deep, I want to sidetrack to finish with not Matthew's main point, but the main point for you. Paul writes Second Corinthians, and he starts with his salutation and then he starts with what he thinks is most important. And I know this may be a little confusing, but 2 Corinthians may have been written before 1 Corinthians. Just, just go with me. We have reason to believe 2 Corinthians is written first of the four letters to the Corinthian church. Ask me later, I'll explain it. This is how Paul speaks to the church at Corinth. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm, because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. Paul said, hey, I don't know about you, but maybe the reason I'm going through these difficulties is so I can comfort you. And maybe because of your difficult difficulties you're going through, you can comfort others. And maybe that's how we change the world. We have great historical evidence that that is how the world was changed and the Roman Empire was conquered. By people comforting one another in their tragedies and not pretending like everything was wonderful and everything was great. Before it was cool and before we had to preach in Twitter phrases that would fit on a PowerPoint screen, I was taught this phrase five million times, and it was a good way to at least make a B in theology class. Messianic suffering must come before messianic glory. Messianic suffering must come before messianic glory. We cannot enjoy the glory of the Messiah until the Messiah suffers. There are lots of things that you want to bask in the glory of. Suffering comes before glory. I'm not asking you to seek it out, and I'm not asking you to seek out horrible things that the Grinch did and horrible things that Herod did. But maybe this holiday, and maybe this new year, as you struggle with trying to figure out why we sing joy to the world and why we look at a world that doesn't seem joyful, maybe we should remember. That God came to imperfect people at an imperfect place because he came to save us all. That is the Christmas message and that is why Herod should be in your nativity set so your friends can look at you funny and wonder why it's there. Let's pray. Holy God, I know And I have taught and I have written so many times and so many times about why bad things keep happening. And I know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, with complete evidence based on you and the resurrection and intellectual methods, that it makes sense. But It doesn't make me feel any better. And it doesn't make the people listening to me feel any better. Because we hurt, like the parents who lost children in Bethlehem when Herod sent men to kill them. We look at evil in the world and we want it to go away. And we hurt And we feel frustrated. Help us to realize that you came to that world. To show us how to function in that world. And maybe we are the agents of comfort. That can revitalize the world we live in today. Thank you. In Jesus name. Amen.